Good morning. My name is Scott, and I am an alcoholic. I'm very grateful to be sober and, and quite honored, by the way, to have anything to do with the state convention. It's a, it's a real privilege for me to be here. I'd like to say a special thank you to everyone who was involved in putting this thing on. I know they don't just happen, and this one's flowing pretty good. And uh, I sure enjoyed Leo last night, didn't y'all? Boy, I'm telling you. It's... I'd like to ask you a couple of questions just for fun. Um, I'm not going to ask you to stand or get tell me your name, but is anybody here sober less than 30 days? I'd just like to see his hands. Got one back here. Okay, thank you. We are so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. May you be blessed to find what I have found here. I hope that you are. And uh, I'd also like to ask, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a uh, of an experience that Bill Wilson had sober about six months, and he was complaining to his wife one time that uh, he'd worked with all these other drunks and none of them had stayed sober. And I think my life hung in the balance of her answer. And she said, but Bill, you have. And I'd like to honor the Alanons that are here. Would you all raise your hands, please? Thank you for coming. And and I'd like also to say congratulations to this convention for having two Alanon speakers. I'm pretty impressed by that. I, yeah. I think that and you got you got two of the greatest, and I may be slightly prejudiced, but I don't think so. Uh, Y'all are going to get to hear my bride, Miss Linda, here if if I sit down, and. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think it's pretty great. I like to quote uh, quote Lois, Bill's wife, co-founder of Alanon, who was asked one time, what did she do in the moment of silence before the meeting? And she said, I invite God to the meeting. That was powerful for me. And I'd like in just a couple of minutes here to ask for a second moment of silence and ask everyone here to please do that. Um, I want to talk about it a little bit first. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask God to bless me with an open heart that that he might share through it, or at the worst case, that I might. And I would ask you to invite your God to join us and bless you with an open heart that you might hear through it. We talk in recovery about the language of the heart. And for me, learning to lay down the language of the gutter and to pick up the language of the heart has been an important part of my recovery. It's incomplete, but I can report a lot of progress, and I'm, I'm very happy about that. I, I don't think I've ever offended anyone by failing to use profanity. I, 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 no one's ever complained about it anyway, so that's, and that is real progress for me. I, I didn't have any adjectives at all when I got here, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting my language back, and that's a plus. And I'd also like to ask, when you invite your God, if you'd ask him to fill this room with love. I like to do that. And uh, in case there's someone here who doesn't have a God, or if you've got one you're afraid of or something that's not working, I want to invite you to borrow mine for this time that we're together. I recommend him very highly. He does great work, and he has a great sense of humor. And if you don't think so, look around the room. I mean, aren't we funny? I think we're hilarious. So uh, let's take a couple of moments and invite God to join us and bless us with open hearts, and I'll meet you back here. Amen. Thank you. I'd like to uh, like to tell you that I found the directions to do what I was asked to do here in two places in the text. That's this blue book. I know some of y'all are familiar with it because I've been hearing you laugh. And uh, I think laughter is a sound effect of recovery, don't you? I think it was one of the great surprises of my life was to find out that uh, the recovery was going to be fun. But here on page 20, it says it on page 29, it says it on page 50. It says, each individual in the personal stories 
describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. And then on page 50 it says, in our personal stories, you will find a wide variation in the way each teller approaches and conceives of the power which is greater than himself. So I, I take that as my instructions on how to do this. Uh, I would start out by telling you that I didn't get drunk the first time until I was 18. I have a really good excuse. Don't be upset with me because I know that's really late. Uh, I needed a drink before then, but I didn't know what it would do. And uh, here's my excuse. I, I think my dad was one of us. And he told me when I was about 10 or 11, he said, there's beer in the refrigerator. Get one when you want it. And uh, he said, one of these days you're going to want to get drunk. And when that day comes, you come to me. Tell me what you want to drink. I will buy it. And we will sit in the living room and get drunk together the first time. But consequently, it wasn't against the rules for me to drink. Therefore, I didn't drink. Now, you follow that, right? You understand that. The earth people get this strange look on their face when you start talking like that. I don't know what's wrong with their heads, but they, they don't understand these kinds of things. And so anyway, I did start drinking. I went away to a, a place called Swanee. It was at that time a men's Episcopal college. And uh, the summer I turned 18, and I got out with the boys the first time, and we were drinking beer. And uh, we were drinking Sterling beer, which is one of my definitions of willpower. It's, some of y'all remember Sterling beer, don't you? My goodness. Oh, boy, that horse has diabetes, no question about it. And... Uh, but I was, uh, and we, we, you could go down to the chow hall and get a gallon mayonnaise jar or pickle jar or whatever, and they'd run it to the dishwasher, and the local tavern would fill that thing with sterling beer for a dollar. And I'm going to give you an idea of when that was. It was a dollar two with tax. Okay? <laughs> to tell you the rest of the story in a nutshell, Budweiser was a dollar twelve. We bought the sterling. I think that tells the rest of it, right? And somewhere between the first sip of the first beer, and I think it was by the time I was at the bottom of the second beer, it happened, right? And uh, I'd like to ask for a show of hands on these kinds of things. It made me taller. Did anybody else get taller when they drank? And some got taller. It also cleared up my acne. Did you notice what it did for your complexion? Anybody have that? Yeah. And uh, and I also became a rather fantastic dancer. Are there any other da- any dancers? They get two hands. Got a couple of them with two hands. Yeah. That's some dancers. How about this one? Expert on many subjects. Oh, Yes. Anyway, got two hands over here on that side. If anybody has any questions when I'm finished, see someone who had two hands up just then. Uh, we are still experts. And, uh, yeah, it did all that magic for me. I think the biggest thing it did for me, though, is it made me feel like I belonged. Sometime when I was maybe three, four years old, I got this belief. And it, it's not a thought, it's a belief. Like I believe if I hold this book out here and let go of it, it'll hit the floor. It's a belief. I got this belief that I was no good that nothing I ever did would ever measure up, and that I didn't belong. And if you knew who I really was, you wouldn't want me around. And I became an actor at that point and got pretty good at it. And I pretended to be who I thought you wanted me to be, and you as defined as whoever's in front of me right now. And I did that for, for about the next 35 or 40 years, I guess. But when I started, when I got my blood alcohol mixture just perfect that first time, all of a sudden, I was good enough, and, and y'all were pretty lucky I was there. And uh, entire psychic change comes to mind. That's, that's what happened for me that first time, is I had this entire psychic change. And it was the most fantastic feeling I'd ever had. And all of a sudden, of being absolutely good enough and absolutely belonging and, and just all of that in, in the place of that great pain. And I didn't know that the biggest pain in my life was feeling like I wasn't good enough and I didn't belong, and that there was something wrong with me. I didn't know that. 
But boy, I knew that booze made, gave me that fabulous feeling. And to, to skip kind of quickly ahead, I zipped through a four-year men's college and five years in two summer schools. And uh, I'm just quick. And uh, the United States Air Force commissioned me a second lieutenant, and I went to Air Force pilot training. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what that was like, because I think it tells the story of my alcoholism very quickly. We flew in the second half of pilot training an aircraft called the T-38. Um, some of the NATO countries are still flying the single-seat version. This is the two-seat, but the single-seat version is the F-5, and they're still using it as a fighter interceptor. The aircraft is uh, what they call high performance. That means it will fly faster than the speed of sound. It has after-burning jet engines. And uh, it's stressed for about seven and a half positive Gs and about four or four and a half negative. I don't remember exactly. I'm going to try to tell you what that means. And uh, so you, you take the... Oh, you saw the movie Top Gun? Most of you saw Top Gun? Okay. I have a news flash. The Russian government did not loan Hollywood any MiGs so that they could make a movie. Those MiGs that they're dogfighting with are this airplane I'm telling you about. All right? That's the one. And you take the active runway in this aircraft, and you lock the brakes, you lock the canopy, you run the power up to what they call 100%, that's everything short of afterburner, and then you release the brakes, and you light the burners. It gives you a little kick, and you liked a little kick, didn't you? Yeah. Uh-huh. And about a mile later, doing about 165 miles an hour, you lift the nose wheel, and she flies off, and you raise the gear. At 1,000 feet, you start pushing, because this thing wants to climb like a homesick angel. And you accelerate to 600 knots, and then you pull it up, and you level at 40,000 feet, three and a half minutes from when you release the brakes back on the runway. All right. The roll rate on this airplane, which is this way, the roll rate, if you use full stick deflection, is in excess of 420 degrees per second. That means it goes around more than once every second. Your eyeballs won't keep up with that. Trust me. A loop, which is the 360-degree turn through the vertical plane, pulling positive Gs, at 25,000 feet, the entry airspeed is 500 knots. It's about 550 miles an hour. And you pull up at 5 Gs. Now, what that means, uh, you're pulling 1 G right now. It's force of gravity. So at 5 Gs, a guy who weighs 200 pounds feels like he weighs 1,000 pounds. If you've ridden the roller coaster, when you hit the bottom of the big hill and everything kind of goes down, that's a little less than 2 Gs. All right, we're going to pull 5. And you, so you pull 5Gs and you, your wings level inverted at 35,000 feet. It takes 10,000 feet to pull this airplane over on its back. And now you can look at the world like this. I recommend it. You'll really love it if you get a chance. And then, right? And then you lose about 8,000 feet coming down the backside. The total elapsed time in that maneuver is less than 25 seconds. I tell you all that for, for two reasons. The first one, of course, is to impress you. We're doing all right with that, aren't we? Uh-huh. And, and the second one is because it tells the story of my alcoholism so well, because I come down from a day of flying that airplane, and I walk into the officer's club about 5.30 in the afternoon, and I don't plan to get drunk. Now, I used to go out and get drunk intentionally a lot. I would celebrate anything. Arbor Day was one of my favorites. Why are you drunk? Well, it's Arbor Day. I'm celebrating it. No, they don't know when Arbor Day is. And I didn't either. And... uh I'm a leave from the Deep South, and I would have celebrated Ulysses S. Grant's birthday if I'd known when it was. This, any excuse. But there was a lot of times where I didn't mean to get drunk, where I would just sort of take drunk. You know, kind of like you just wake up in the morning sick with a cold. You know, it just happened. And that used to happen to me quite a bit. And uh, maybe you're familiar with it. What, uh, what I'd like to ask is if you all would be willing. I, I don't want to tell this by myself. I'd like for you all to participate. I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to do some audience participation? Mm. 
Let's try that one more time. Would you be willing to do audience participation? Yes. Okay. I'm going to point at you. You fill in the blanks. Are you ready? Okay. I walk in there at 530. I'm planning to have one beer, no more than two. Right. Okay. Trust yourself. You know these, you know these answers. And, and uh, I want you to know it's y'all Al-Anons. You know the answers, too. You can play. You heard this on the phone, okay? And you believed it again. <laughs> All right? You believed it one more time. All right. So I'm going to have one beer, no more than... I should be home by 6.30, no later than... But what happens is it's somewhere between the first sip of the first beer and the bottom of the second one, the phenomenon of craving that Dr. Silkworth talks about in the book happens to me. And I suddenly become terribly, terribly thirsty. And I don't leave to get home by 7. As a matter of fact, I leave the officer's club at exactly 1 o'clock in the morning because they... Okay. Can there be another reason? I've never heard one. I drive home with a hand over one eye. See, show of hands. Who knows? Okay, if anybody doesn't know, ask one of them. They can tell you why. And I would get home and I would get to listen to her. Now, I really looked forward to that, didn't you? And then, and then I would go into the bathroom. Uh, it's a little indelicate at nine in the morning, but could I see the hands of the pukers, please? Come on. Come on. These are my people. I don't know how the rest of you got here. But I thought the two most important inventions of this century, of, of last century, I guess now, huh? Was that little half moon shape of carpet they put around the commode for you to kneel on? As a, one of our boys invented that, you know. And that soft commode seat you could rest your head on when you're kind of in between. Those are people that did that. Those were our people. You know it was. So for, for those of you who are new, they're going to lie to you here. I'm going to fix this one for you now. They're going to tell you you can't quit forever, and it is untrue. I have personally quit forever over 2,000 times. Right? Didn't work, of course, but oh, I did it. So I'm in there bringing up my toenails, and... Uh, and quitting forever. And then I would pray what I call the pre-AA prayer, which, by the way, I found it in the big book in one of the stories exactly the way I do it. But you all know it. We'll do it together. I'm going to do the first line. You all do the second line. Are you ready? God, get me out of this. Yeah. And then I brush my teeth and go to bed. If you're new and you're unsure as to whether or not you'd be here, you should be here. We've got some pamphlets 18 questions and that kind of thing. But I have a one-question test for you. Did you know the prayer? Stick around. <laughs> You're going to get worse. And uh, it's now 2.33 o'clock in the morning. Well, I get up about 6 in that, that wonderful, magical place between drunk and hungover. Remember that one? I really miss that, don't you? And uh, I'd shower and shave. I think if Mr. Gillette hadn't invented the safety razor, you all have a different speaker today. And uh, brush my teeth and get into my flight suit and my boots and thank heavens for the sunglasses and drive out to the airbase. And about 7.30 in the morning, I'm sitting in one of those airplanes I was telling you about. And we're in a two-ship formation today. And just after liftoff, I tuck in behind the leader and his afterburner would be right there. And we're going to do 550 miles an hour and pull 5Gs going over the top. And I got about a 4-7 hangover now. Remember those? Right, I got booze coming out of every pore. My toenails hurt. My eyebrows hurt. I'm sucking 100% oxygen. It is not helping. 
Um, my throat and, and everything in here just ripped raw from throwing up all that acid the night before. And the only thing that keeps me going is the sure and certain knowledge that I will never feel this way in a plane again because last night I quit forever and I meant it with all my heart. Right? You bet. You know what I just described? That's willpower. That's exactly what that is, is willpower. I think the functional alcoholic has more willpower in his little finger. I don't think the earthlings should be allowed to say willpower because they have no idea what it means. I think it's why they don't become alcoholics, is they don't have the willpower for it. They don't. They don't. The guy goes out on prom night, and he gets drunk, and he throws up on his date, and he wrecks his car, and he goes to jail, and he gets up, and he says, I'm never getting drunk again, and he never does. Obvious lack of willpower. So I'm dying in this airplane, absolutely dying. But I'm a young man, and my, my body is in pretty good physical shape. And by 5.30 that afternoon, I'm not well. I'm not well by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm better. I'm feeling good enough to have maybe, maybe one beer, no more than... I should be home by 6.30, no later than... But I leave the club at exactly 1 o'clock in the morning because they... And I drive home with a hand over one, and I listen to... And I walk into the bathroom, God get me out of this, brush my teeth and go to bed. Okay? Over and over and over again. I was powerless over alcohol and I was ignorant of the fact that I was powerless over alcohol. And that's a rough combination. Rough combination. I was unable to look into the past all the way to yesterday morning and say, didn't you do this yesterday? Didn't you also do it the day before? Didn't you also do it five days last week and 22 days last month? I couldn't see it. I, I took parachute training with a hangover. 7.30 in the morning, jumping off of a platform this high into a sawdust pit, doing a roll with one of those horrible hangovers, like 10, 12 days in a row. Couldn't figure it out. I could not figure out that I can't drink one. I didn't know about the phenomenon of craving. I graduated from pilot training. I tell, uh, I tell one other quick flying story, and if anybody wants to talk flying stories later, I'd love to, by the way. Um, I was, uh, eventually I was a captain. I was flying a rather highly classified mission uh, in the Southeast Asia theater, which is to say I wasn't in Vietnam. That's all I'm going to tell you about it. But it's very highly classified. And at 4 o'clock one morning, I'm taxiing my aircraft out, and I was so drunk that I was unable to keep it on the pavement. I taxied it right off into the grass. Maybe you can relate if I ask if maybe you've had that experience with some other types of vehicles. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, if it had been four in the afternoon or if there had been another airplane taxiing behind mine, somebody else would be standing here, and I'd be serving life in the military prison at Leavenworth. And that's not an estimate. That's a simple fact. But see, I was a mile from the tower, and nobody else was awake on the airfield, and they couldn't see what had happened. So I was able to turn it back around and get airborne. And people said, how in the world can you fly drunk? I said, geez, that's easy. It's a big sky. I mean, there's just not much up there. You know, if you can get one of these things airborne, they're really okay after that. The ground is the problem. You should know that. <laughs> That's where you had the trouble, wasn't it? You were okay standing. It was when you... Uh, anyway. I got an honorable discharge. And uh, I got a job as a traveling salesman. I recommend if you're not serious about staying sober, that before you get your next drink, interview and get yourself a job as a traveling salesman. I think it, it'll bring you back here faster than any form of work that I'm aware of. And... Uh, I was with a major corporation. I eventually became a manufacturer's rep. I had a business partner. In the summer of 1984, he realized that I had a problem. 
And um, I was living in Nashville with my first wife. I think that tells a lot, doesn't it? And a friend of mine says that there's a mistake in the big book. It's a typo in the chapter two wives. It's misspelled. It said should be T-W-O, two wives. That's the average. Uh, but anyway, I was living with my first wife and... Uh, I went down to Atlanta for a series of meetings, and I went a couple of days early to get really ready for the meetings, right? You know. And uh, when the meetings were over, my business partner um, said to me, either you're going into treatment as fast as I can put you in there, or we're going to get us a business divorce. And he'd been carrying me, and I knew that. And what I didn't know was that his wife was in treatment for a prescription drug addiction. He'd been to Family Week. And we were playing a new game sweeping the country called Intervention. Possibly some of you have played. It's tough to do well in a game you don't know the rules. And uh, on June the 28th of 1984, which was my belly button birthday, as a matter of fact, it still is, um, it is the only thing that hadn't changed. Um, I signed into a little treatment center outside of Atlanta. And they told me later I was one of the saddest looking people that ever came through the door there, and there's a very good reason. I was one of the saddest people that ever came through the door. Because when they told me I couldn't drink scotch on the rocks uh, or Miller Lite, or use some of the alcohol substitutes that I was using in pretty large quantities by that time. I never thought I was ever going to have a good time again. Not even smile. The, the text says stupid, boring, and glum. And that's what I thought my life was going to be without it. I, I couldn't even imagine enjoying a ball game or having a good weekend. I never even, like I said, I never thought I'd laugh out loud or smile again. And that was the case for the next several days, but uh, it didn't today. Bill says in uh, one place that he's been rocketed into a fourth dimension and another place that he's been catapulted into a fourth dimension. I think that's maybe a little understated, don't you? It is astonishing to me. There's no way to get from where I was to where I am. And it is astonishing to me the life that I'm living today. Watch the old timers when I say this. I'm laughing more and it's coming from a deeper place. See them going like this? Stick around till you know why they're nodding. I really recommend it. So anyway, I'm in this treatment center and I didn't want to be there. I was there to save my job. I'm convinced today that there are no wrong reasons for doing the right thing. And uh, about the fourth night I was there, uh, I didn't sleep, by the way. Um, I, if you're new and you're not sleeping, don't worry about it. Um, my sleep pattern didn't level off for about a year. It, it took me, well, it took me a while to realize, see, some of the things that I knew for absolutely sure and certain weren't right. And one of the things I knew for sure was that caffeine didn't affect me. If you're pounding down a quart of scotch a day, it really doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. So I'm drinking coffee at AA meetings and then wondering why I lay there in the bread and vibrate. So if you're new and you're not sleeping, you might consider leaving the cafe. Anyway, you're on your own. Well, that was my experience. with Anyway, this, these first few nights in this treatment center, I'm not sleeping. And for somebody who's on the mixture I was on, they tell me that's pretty common. And... Uh, I want to tell you something in case you don't know. If you're not drinking and you're not sleeping, it stays dark a long time at night. <laughs> it is, it's dark a long time. And uh, it gets dull laying there. Because I've heard all my jokes, you know. And uh, this fourth night, what this, is, this happened to me. I didn't do any of what I'm about to describe. But this review of my life happened. And it wasn't one of those instantaneous things that you've heard about people who've had a near-death experience. Mine lasted, I think, several hours. And review happened in detail as to what had happened in my life. And always in the past, I'd given myself credit for my intentions. I'm one of the best intended people I think you've ever known. 
And one of my favorite intentions was I intended to get a clown suit. And care, I'm an amateur magician. And to carry my magic kit in the car. And then when I was on the road, instead of running the saloons, was to get into the clown suit and go to a children's hospital and do a magic show for the kids. And I intended to do that for over 20 years. And I thought I was one fabulous guy. Yes, one of these days that I was going to go do that. Our third step talks about a decision. And for me, the difference between a decision and an intention. An intention is followed by more intentions. A decision, ah, that is followed by action. That's the difference. And this night when this review happened to me, I was unable to see the, uh, the intentions anymore. They were gone. All I could see was the actions, and it wasn't as pretty. And I got to the point where I began to think about the worst thing I had ever done. I have a single thing that stands alone. We're going to talk about it later. But uh, I had never allowed myself to, to think about it. It had been easy to take it away, you know, when that thought would show up. Three fast scotches will turn that baby off. Laying in that treatment center, unable to sleep, there was no way to get it turned off. And uh, I don't know how long I lay there thinking about this thing I'd done when I was in my late teens, early 20s. And I was so ashamed, and I hated myself and what I'd done so much, that I reached what I call bottom. We use the term a lot. I don't see a definition of it in the 12 and 12 or in the big book. And for me, bottom didn't have to do with the physical plane. I'd been in worse shape physically than I was in this treatment center. I'd thrown up blood a couple of times. I'd been in plenty of different kinds of trouble. For me, bottom was of the spirit. Bottom happened in here. When I hurt so bad, it was willing to pay absolutely any price not to continue to be the man I'd been. For me, that was bottom. Something inside my chest, these words did not come out of my mouth. They didn't happen inside my head. My vocal cords didn't move. Something inside my chest screamed very loudly to a God that I don't think I believed in and said, God, forgive me. And I received his forgiveness in that moment. I had one of the burning bush experiences like Bill talks about. I'll try to describe it to you. It, the physical feeling was like when you've been having uh, the dentist take x-rays of your teeth and they've laid that lead apron on you. When they lift that up, that apron is taken off of you. That's what it felt like. Something very heavy left my entire body. I'm laying on my back in this bed and something very heavy just flew off of me. I thought I was going to float up off of the bed. And with my eyes closed, I could see the entire room. And there was this beautiful golden white light shining from my head to my toes and covering just my bed. And I knew in an instant that there was a God. And I think I knew that I was his child. And I knew that he loved me beyond my capacity to receive love. And it felt so good. And I knew that he had the power to forgive me and that I was forgiven. And I don't know that he forgave me in that moment. And maybe he never judged me. But I know that I received the forgiveness in that moment. I don't worry too much about that, but it, it seems important for me to say it. And uh, I lay there in his presence for a while, basking in that, that love. And if it had been any stronger, I don't think I could have stood it. almost hurt. It felt so good. And I don't know whether I lay there for two or three seconds or two or three hours just in his presence. And after that, I slept some. And I awakened the next morning wanting to be one of his guys. And that was my first cornerstone. And my second one happened a few weeks later when I walked into my therapist's office, my counselor, whatever they called him. Uh, and uh, it was 11 o'clock in the morning, I remember, because I went to lunch right after this meeting. And I walked in there really wanting it. And uh, I knew he was working on my aftercare plan. And in the interest of being helpful, I explained to him, uh-huh, don't get ahead of me now. I explained to him that uh, they had a 28-day program, and I wasn't staying a minute longer. 
and that I wasn't going to take an abuse, and I wasn't going to go to a halfway house. And I explained those things to help him do his job, you know, so he could have the parameters around which to build a SAPS care plan. Just being helpful. And he smiled, and he looked at me, and he said, you have left out something you aren't going to do. I said, really, what? He says, well, you aren't going to make it. I'm not normally a violent man. I made a verbal exception with him. And in language I like to think I don't use much anymore. Uh, let me try to cut a lot of it out. And I asked him more or less, why would you say that to me? We'll leave it there. And he's asked me this fabulous question. He said, if you already know how to run a program to keep yourself sober, how is it you happen to be a patient here? And I said, huh, and nothing came out. That had never happened to this mouth before. I have an answer. I always have an answer. Couldn't answer his question. Don't know how much longer I sat in his office. I know I left there and I went to lunch. And after lunch, my body went where it was supposed to be, you know, to the movie and coping skills and group and phys ed, whatever they had laid out. My body was right there. My mind was back in that gentleman's office trying to answer the unanswerable question. About nine o'clock that night at dusk. I got the answer. I could show you. If we went to the treatment center, I could show you exactly where I was standing. And it hit me, and again it hit in here. And I may have taken a step back. I mean, literally, it was like it was like somebody throwing a medicine ball and hitting you in the chest. And the answer was, and I think still is, I do not know how to run a program to keep myself sober. And if I am going to be one of the very few that make it, I'm going to have to do it all. This is not smorgasbord for me. I don't get to take what I want and leave the rest. I've got too much bet here. It's a wager. It's a very simple wager. I told you I have bet my freedom. I'm supposed to be serving life in Leavenworth. I could have been killed any number of times by this disease. I don't think I could impress you with it. We've all got pretty high numbers on that. Everything that's valuable to me in my life today is suspended from my recovery. My sanity. I've been to the insane asylum. I woke up in the rubber room one day. I think they saved my life. I was hallucinating things as real as this podium. Yeah. Everything that's important to me is suspended from my recovery today. Because if I lose it, everything that I love hits the floor and shatters. So I try to treat this recovery like it's the most important thing in my life. I'm told that my priorities aren't what I say they are. My priorities what I do. If I want to know what my priorities are, I don't listen to my words about the future. I look at my actions in the recent past. What got done was a priority and what didn't get done was not a priority. And anything I'm saying to the contrary is a lie that I'm telling me. And those are dangerous. And I didn't like that the first time I heard it. I think that's why the evening half, the 11th step is so important. It's for me to do a review each day to find out what my priorities were today. That's how I live in a daytight compartment. So anyway, I got this answer. And the answer was, I have to do it all. And at that point, I surrendered to what I lovingly call step one, section B. My life's unmanageable. See, up until then, I'd been in treatment for them to teach me to run my program my way. I don't think that was going to work, do you? Mm -mm. When I read that first step, uh, I don't read English real well, apparently. I thought it said we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, therefore our lives had become unmanageable. It was pointed out to me that the word therefore does not appear in the first step, that that hyphen or dash, if you prefer, if you look that up in the dictionary under punctuation, you'll see that a hyphen connects two unrelated thoughts. That the fact that I'm powerless over alcohol and the fact that my life is unmanageable are not related. That was kind of an interesting thing. because The reason I was confused is because the day before I got sober, 
the fact that I was powerless over alcohol and the fact that my life was a disaster, those were related. Fifteen years later, they're not. And my life's not a disaster anymore. I've read the book a couple of times, and I don't find any place in it after page 59 where I think that, that first step is. I've read the rest of the book several times, and I can't find the place that says, Congratulations, having achieved this level. Your life is now manageable. Tanks full. Keys are in it. Go for it. I can't find it. It does not appear to me to to, to uh, promise manageability. I do see a couple of places where it promises sanity. And so maybe maybe that's what I'm supposed to have. And maybe my life remains unmanageable. Not insane anymore, but unmanageable. Which is the reason I need a home group. It's the reason I go to a lot of meetings. It's the reason I need a God. It's the reason I need a sponsor. It's because I don't want to manage it anymore. I know what happens when I manage. The third step promises. Top of page 63, say I have a new employer. So I'm trying to figure out how for him to manage. For me to step out of the way. And he has... He has a sergeant major. I call him Ice Cream Steve. That's my sponsor. And I just kind of surrender to him and do what he says. So anyway, I'm, I'm back in this treatment center and I get this idea, this step one, section B, I'm not going to be able to manage this thing. And that was my second cornerstone. I, uh, I zipped through a 28-day treatment program in six weeks flat. And uh, once again, a quick study. And I went back to Nashville Tennessee, where the only person I knew in the entire city who was in recovery owned one of the businesses that I called on. And I didn't want him to know, right? You understand that, right? Newcomer thinking. Real solid. And uh, I set out going to, I, I set out to follow their aftercare plan, and I did pretty good with it. I did not allow my vehicle to drive down the street in front of my favorite tavern until I was sober over two years. Literally did not drive down the street in front of it. And uh, I, my first six months, I didn't drink. I mean, that's all I did. 24 hours a day, I just didn't drink. You know, I was focused on it. I know you know what I'm talking about. And I was, um, I was crazy as a March hare. I, I, they said to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I think I went to 87. See, because I didn't know you could go to two meetings in a day. I thought if you missed, you just missed. Some more real rock-solid newcomer thinking. And... Uh, I was doing a fourth step. They had given me a four-step guide in the treatment center. It's one of those psycho babble, you still hate your mother, fill in the blanks things. And I, I do. I must report that I got something out of that, and that's that it got me to the fifth step. I know that uh, the first time I looked at the steps, they looked to me like they'd been written by a hanging judge who's having a really bad day. Don't they look, if you haven't done them, don't they look to you like they're designed to punish you? That's what it looked like to me. I was wrong about so many things. That was just one of them. The steps were designed to enable me to lay down my burden. And I didn't know that until I'd done them. So anyway, I'm doing this psychobabble four-step. I recommend, by the way, the actual four-step. The real live, sure enough, one-of-a-kind four-step in this book. Um, if, you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a series of lists and observations and prayers. People ask me, should you write the story of your life? I, think, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think you should do a four-step also. And... <laughs> And, and, and when I talk about the steps, by the way, I'm talking about the expanded version. The, uh, the preface to the third edition says the 12 steps which summarize our program. So the steps we see on the wall are a summary. That's the cliff notes. I got too much bet to try to slide on the cliff notes. I don't need a C in this. All right. I got to get a good grade in this. I got too much bet. So anyway, I'm, 
I finished this psychobabble four-step, and I called back down to the treatment center to a counselor named Bernie. Bernie had not been my counselor, but when I'd had my big spiritual experience, I realized I was actually going to have to do the steps, and when I came to the fifth step, I knew I was going to have to tell the truth, and I was pretty ashamed of some of that stuff, and so I selected my person to hear the fifth step very carefully. The reason I selected Bernie is because you would look at him until he was stoned. You know that look, that real relaxed facial thing, you know that look on somebody who's ripped out of their minds? And I thought he'd be a great choice because this guy's stoned. There's no way he's going to remember. It's a great idea. So I called him. We booked an appointment. I drove to Atlanta. I did my fifth step in the little chapel there with Bernie. And I came back to Nashville. And by the way, just an aside, Bernie was not stoned. He was sober 23 years. That was serenity. I didn't know what it looked like. <laughs> or that rock-solid newcomer thinking. And... uh Came back to Nashville, and I'm still looking for a sponsor, which is, is hilarious. You're going to think this is funny. I do. I was looking for a sponsor I could relate to. Isn't that hilarious? I mean, isn't that insane? I can't figure out you can go to two meetings in a day, okay? Who can I relate to? I can relate to the squirrel on the next branch. That's who I can relate to. And I didn't need a squirrel for a sponsor. I needed a winner for a sponsor. And I did not need a sponsor I could relate to, and I don't today. I needed a sponsor I would obey. It was a concept I didn't have. <laughs> so there was this guy in this meeting. His name was Jerry. And uh, I wanted to feel like he looked. He was all lit up. You know, his lights were on. He was having a good time. And I knew he wasn't drinking. I knew he wasn't taking any dope. And, you know, the reason I drank is because I wanted to feel like he looked. Isn't that why you drank? Because you wanted to feel good? Well, this guy was doing it without the chemical assist. So I said, would you sponsor me? And he said, uh, Okay. Here's an assignment. See, Jerry's sponsored by, by assignment. And that's how I do it. I've been sponsored by assignment. And uh, he gave me a tough one. And if, if anybody's interested, it's kind of a long story. I'd be glad to tell it to you later. Anyway, a week later, I came back to him and said, okay, I did the assignment. And he said, I'll sponsor you my way. I said, fine. He said, you are too sick to stay sober on the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You will need the program also. I got no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry died how long ago, Gene? Do you remember? About two years ago now. He was sober over 20 years. And uh, Gene, by the way, who's taping here, touched my life so deeply in so many ways. When I was a rookie, Gene was one of the anchors of my home group. This fellow who's taping here, and I may owe him my life, I don't know. But he, he loaned me tapes and touched me and loved me when I needed it so badly, and I was so in love with him. Gene, this is a real chance to publicly say thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you all will support him. Anyway, so this guy said, said, you're too sick to stay sober on the fellowship. You're going to need the program also. And I don't know what he's talking about. And he said to the day he died, he thought the best kept secret we had in our fellowship was the definition of our program. The way we keep it secret, of course, we read it at every meeting. Young lady read it up here. Sentence before the first step. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. No steps. No program. Just that simple. I am blessed to have been sober since my first AA meeting, June the 28th, 1984. And in the 15 and a half years that have ensued, and I don't say this to be controversial, I say this to tell you the simple truth, I have not yet seen a single person in and out of the program. Not one. In and out of the fellowship, barge loads. Train loads, you bet. In and out of the program, I ain't seen it yet. And I hope, I hope I'm not offending anybody. But i got to tell you, I have never seen anybody get a sponsor who's already done the work in this book 
and allow that sponsor to coach them through the work in this book and stay active and drink. I've never seen it. I don't have any expectation to see it. I think we're pretty humble when we say rarely have we seen a person fail. I ain't seen it in 15 years. We have a tradition that says the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. I don't think that's the only requirement for sobriety. It hasn't been my experience. Anyway, um, I had looked at the steps there on the wall, and when he started talking about me actually doing them, I wasn't really excited about it. And I said, Jerry, I, I was honest with the man. Right? I had rigorous honesty. Was, you know, I had four and a half months. That's all I'd understood so far, rigorous honesty. So uh, I said, Jerry, I, I don't want to work the steps. He said, oh, that's okay. I said, good. He said, as long as you work them. I said, Jerry, I don't believe we're communicating, son. He said, sure we are. That's the definition of willingness. Willingness is when you do what you're supposed to, whether you feel like it or not. Oh, I can do things I don't feel like doing? Hmm. Been a couple of decades for me on that one. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, I'm still trying to get out of it. And I said, why do I have to do the 12 steps? Now, Jerry did not answer why questions for the men that he sponsors. And I don't either, except for this one. Except for this one. There's a reason. See, all the why questions come from my head where my disease continues to live and flourish. And besides that, the why question, why is a management question. Step one, section B says I'm not in management. So the answer to all the why questions is the same. The answer is I don't need to know. That's pretty important. See, it isn't not knowing that makes me crazy. It's needing to know. When I can lay down the need to know, I can be at peace and not know. That's important stuff for me. So anyway, I said, Jerry, why do I have to work the 12 steps? And he said, think of yourself as a garbage can. Hmm, easy enough. What we're going to do with these 12 steps is we're going to dump you out. We're going to scrub the can. We're going to stand it back upright. And we're going to fish through your life. Most of it is garbage, and we will throw it away. But some of it is good, and that portion we will keep. For example, he gave two examples. He said, do you love your children? I said, very much. He said, good. We will keep that. He got smart with me. He is bad to do that. He said, when you go to work, you do a good job, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, well, we'll keep some of that. When we get finished with these 12 steps, you're going to be a great big can with only just a little bit of really good stuff in the bottom. And there's a reason for that. Our program is kind of like going to the dentist. we got to drill before we can fill. We've got to dig this poison out. We can't just try to stuff the good stuff on top because if we do, that poison's still in there. And it's going to get sicker and sicker, and it's going to explode one of these days. I'm still saying why, man, because I don't want to do this stuff. And uh, he's talking about this can, and he says the reason that you need the big clean part is because one of these days something really heavy is going to just slam into your heart. And the example he used, he said your father's going to die. And he said when you take that big big shot in your heart, if you don't have that big clean can empty and clean to store that pain in while we love you back to spiritual health you will escape which is what you're addicted to so the alcohol is not your problem and he's right i had my first drunk in the summer of 1961 i had my most recent drink on june the 27th of 1984 and neither of those nor, nor anyone in between was alcohol ever my problem not once alcohol was my answer that's what makes me an alcoholic it worked for me why the social drinkers drink is astounds me. I don't think they should be allowed to. They don't know how. <laughs> now, that should be a felony, okay? <laughs> what a waste. Alcohol abuse. You know, they drink half. <laughs> Excuse me. I didn't mean to get off on that tangent. 
But anyway, he tells me I'm going to need this clean can, and the only thing I can tell you is that I ran out of why questions, and I wanted what he had, and he told me if I would do the things he had done, I would get the things that he had, and I believed him. And so I allowed him to coach me through the 12 steps of the program of recovery, and he changed my life. I needed to be changed, but I didn't have the power to change me. And it was in doing this work, the way he laid it out, out of this book, that the changes happened for me. Um, I need to tell you this story I'm about to tell you is about a daughter who's doing just fine. Okay, we, I, we email all the time. We talk about once a week. She's, she's at, I'll tell you how well she's doing. She's dating a guy I approve of now. Wow. I know some of you understand that, what a huge thing that is. And, uh, and I have her permission to tell you this. I will tell you that she is blind in one eye. And on July the 4th, five years ago, she stuck a pistol in her mouth and pulled the trigger. And, uh, her, her brother and I found her about six and a half hours later. We rushed to Vanderbilt Hospital. By the time we'd been there 45 minutes, the lobby looked like this. There was 20 or 30 of you there, I guess. And by the time, by, by the time night fell, it looked exactly like this. The place was, there must have been a hundred of you. Y'all were phenomenal having a prayer meeting out there. They told us for the first four days that she would not live. They didn't say may. They said this suicide attempt is successful. She's going to four days is a long time to sit by your baby's bed holding her hand. She got all these tubes stuck in her and she's conscious and she's squeezing you once for yes and twice for no. Four days is a long time. And I believe that if Jerry hadn't insisted that I do that work, if he hadn't sponsored me by assignment, I don't think I could have stood the pain. I don't think I could have done it because I needed that big clean can to store that pain in while you all love me back to spiritual health. That is exactly what you did. I am so proud to be a member of this organization because, you know, I hear what you say, but I want you to know I watch what you do, too. And I want to tell you what you did. You put a 24-hour watch on me is what you did. Not to keep me from drinking. I don't think anybody even thought of that. You put a 24-hour watch on me, and I don't know how long it lasted, six or eight weeks, I suppose, because she was a long time before she was really out of the woods. So that at 3 o'clock in the morning, if I needed to cry, that one of my people would be there to hold me. I watched you do that. I know who I know who you are, because I watched what you did, because you cared, and you cared enough to be there, and you cared enough to miss work, and you cared enough to miss a night's sleep, and you cared, and you cared where the rubber meets the road. Well, I'm so proud to be one of you. And my my daughter lived, and I have permission to tell you about a man that I sponsor whose son didn't, and that's a harder blow than the one we took. And emotionally, he was gone a long time. Uh, he's he's sober. I can't. I guess he just got a 14-year chip. I gave it to him last month, but I'm brain damaged and I can't remember. <laughs> 14 years. He didn't drink again, but he uh, emotionally he was gone for over a year. That's a hard one. And I had the privilege of doing some all-nighters with him and holding him while he cried at three o'clock in the morning. And when he got back emotionally, he said it better than I could. What he said was, one of these days, you're going to have to go to the mountain all by yourself. If you haven't done the work in this book, and you don't know how to reach up and take the master's hand, you're not going to be able to go. And I believe that's right. I believe that's exactly right. I'd like to read from the text on page 14 out of Bill's story. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. And that was why I had to do the 12 steps. It's because I needed to be changed. Whew. Boy, sometimes it wears me out to tell that. I remember them so well when I tell them. 
I'll try to lighten up a little here. When uh, I, I started going to the old Woodbine Club in Nashville, and my home group, by the way, is the back room in Nashville. They meet Saturday and Sunday mornings, and they send you all a lot of love, and they got some to send, believe me. And um, I saw the slogans on a wall. Somebody told me that the slogans are the handrails to the steps, that wherever you are in the steps, make sure you're hanging onto the rails. I like that. And uh, I saw the, the slogans on the wall. One of them said, let go and let God. I thought, boy, that must be wonderful. I wonder what that means. And, and one of them, yeah, one of them said, first things first. I, now, I understood that. I understood that one. I wasn't doing it, of course, but I understood it. And one of them said, one day at a time. And I, I thought, well, I know what that means. That means don't drink today. And if you're new, that's exactly what it means. But I want to tell you that after a while, that may not be enough for you. What it means to me today is that through the first ten steps I've cleaned up my past, there's nothing gaining on me. Nothing gaining on me. And as I've continued to develop this relationship with the God of love and joy, who's not mad at me, by the way, I'm pretty excited about the idea that my future's in his hand. Past is clean. Future's in God's hands. Those two facts combine to free me to live one day at a time in this day. That's the only way I can be here, is to have both of those things in place. Then I can live one day at a time in this day. I was in a meeting in Atlanta about 10 years ago, and I heard a guy define freedom. And I think he got it. He said, freedom is when I accept full responsibility for all of my own actions. At that point, I'm free. Now, up until then, I may have been at large. Right? But I'm not free. You see, free is permanent if I keep paying the price, as some of us are aware, at large can be temporary. It was important to me. And that's what the step work for me was about, was accepting responsibility. So I'm free today. To do absolutely anything, I'm willing to live with the results of. I don't. People told me all my life that I li- that I learned from my mistakes. Not true. Absolutely untrue. What I learned from is living with the results of my mistakes. I'm like the poodle that wets on the rug. What did he learn? Nothing. When did he start learning? When you rubbed his nose in it. I'm the same way. That's when I start learning. And so with the steps, I take responsibility for my own actions. And that's how I learned not to do those kinds of things. I hate making amends, don't you? That's awful. And so I try not to do things that I'll have to make amends for. Anyway, they had this one other slogan on the wall that made me absolutely crazy because I thought it was the biggest problem I had. And I'd look at that thing and it would just whirl. And the slogan was, think, 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 yeah. Really, my head was a very busy place. A friend of ours calls his home, his home entertainment, his head is home entertainment center. Says it's got everything it needs but off switch. I told one of the guys I sponsor, the other a new guy I'm sponsoring, I said, listen, when I'm hugging you and you feel my hand sliding up your back and up your neck and caressing the back of your head, don't get the wrong idea. I'm looking for the off switch is what I'm doing. <laughs> and we ain't found it yet, but we're still hunting. That think, think, think bothered me. I can't find it in the big book, can't find it in the 12 and 12. Came up with my own definition for whatever it's worth. Think, think, think. What that means is, Three thinks is the limit. Okay? That's the max. Whatever it is, I can think about it once, that's okay. I can think about it the second time. When I think about it the third time, I must lay it down. For if I were going to outthink it, I would have outthunk it in three things. That has brought me a lot of peace. Yeah. I, when I was sober two years, I stopped praying for God's guidance. Quit, quit it flat. Because I went to a different level of belief. And my belief today is that God's guidance is here for me every day as a free and clear gift. So what I ask for is that I might be open to his guidance today. I suspect that all the blocks in the channel between me and God are at my end. And I think his end is probably fairly clear. I'll try to give him some credit. Um, but that 
when I have a big deal, I hear people saying there aren't any big deals. I don't know what page that's on. I've read the book a couple of times. I can't find it. I think there are big deals. I'll name you one, 30-day chip. I think that's a big deal. But when i got a big deal in my life and, I, and I'm wanting to know, that's what makes me crazy. When I was sober about six and a half years, I moved out of the home my first wife and I were, were living in. And the reason I moved out is because I realized that I was going to beat her. I, I came within just an inch or so of giving her a straight right and following up one afternoon. And two days later, I moved out. And I moved into a little apartment that wasn't as nice as what I'm used to living in. And uh, I didn't know what to do. My religion said I couldn't get divorced. And my mind said, live with her and you are going to beat her up something terrible. I didn't know what to do. And I had a mentor in uh, High Point, North Carolina, named Burke Harlan, who's gone to the big meeting. And Burke had told me that he prayed outdoors. It seemed to work better for him under God's sky than under man's roof. But I started doing that. And every morning I made a cup of coffee and I went for a walk with my God. And I'd sit on the curb and watch the sun come up and I'd pray these prayers. And I'd say, God, if it's your will for us to be together, put us together. And if it's your will for us to be apart, put us apart. Those are the easy ones. Here's the tough one. And if it's your will for me not to know today, leave me not knowing. See, when I can pray that one and mean it, I can step out of management. That's the step one, section B prayer for me. Is ask him to leave me not knowing. However big a deal it is, the guidance for it will be, it'll be here right on time. Right on time. And like I said before, it isn't, it isn't not knowing that makes me crazy. It's needing to know. And that was how I laid it down. I need to report that I lived completely without adult supervision for over three years. <laughs> and survived. I met my absolute very best lifetime friend in our fellowship, and I married her, and she's your next speaker, my bride, Miss Linda. I hope you all will stick and hear her. Anyway, I just I just was in a don't-know-what-to-do situation. I was in a lot of those. I was about two years sober. I was in a, well, you might have thought it was an argument. It was actually a discussion, because yeah, I'm too spiritual to argue, you know, in two years. And in the old Woodbine Club, about an hour before a meeting, and some something really, really important we were arguing about. I couldn't tell you exactly what it was right now. I don't remember. But it was uh, maybe whether I'm a recovered or recovering alcoholic, something that really needs to be settled. And uh, old Joe B. walked in. And you remember Joe? Joe had been sober since about three days before the earth began to cool. And and I knew that Joe was a very intelligent man and sober a long time. He would obviously be on my side of this burning issue. So as Joe poured his coffee, I posed the question to him. And his response was, I am not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Do not wish to engage in any controversy. Neither endorse nor oppose any causes. My primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. And by the time he finished that, my opponent and I were laughing pretty hard. It took me some time after that. I had what we call a revelation. You know what a revelation is? Revelation. That's when I figure out for myself something y'all been trying to tell me for six months or longer. It's a revelation. I had I had this revelation, and I found Joe, and I said, you meant that? He says, oh, yeah. <laughs> Old Joe B. was living the AA preamble. He was one of the most peaceful people I've ever known in my life. And do you know that when I live the AA preamble, I'm one of the most peaceful guys you've ever known in your life? And that works so good for me that I don't do it very often. Do you know what I mean? Aren't we nuts? Aren't we absolutely nuts? Oh, <laughs> I had a problem with this idea of God's will. I saw that in a couple of the steps, and it frightened me because the term God's will scared me. Mama, why Grandma died? Well, it was God's will. Oh, I don't want any of that. So I had to take what that phrase, God's will, meant to me and break it into two pieces. The first one was things like, what am I going to be when I grow up? Where am I going to live? Who am I going to live with? How much money am I going to make? What's going to happen to my children? 
did the communists eventually take over the world. Every bit of that violates one day at a time. Right? Every bit of it violates one day at a time. And it all violates step one, section B. Those are all management questions. I had to put that down. I think of that whole thing as God's plan, not being in management. I don't need to know anything about it. Leaves me with my own concept of God's will. I know what it is. I know exactly what God's will is for me. I'm a citizen. I vote. I have a wife, a really neat wife. I act like I'm married all the time. I don't make any exceptions to that. I, uh, I drive an automobile. If you're around me in traffic and you put your blinker on, I'll let you in. That may not be big news in Paducah, but in Nashville sometimes it is. I'm an alcoholic. I have a home group. I attend a lot of meetings. I read two pages a day in the big book, just two. Just sort of work my way through the book. You read the book about four times a year like that. And about 15 years later, they're going to accuse you of having memorized it. You'll be able to find what you're looking for. And uh, I have a sponsor, and I go to a lot of meetings. I have the high privilege of taking a couple of meetings a month into prisons and jails. And I want to tell you that it is the highlight of my month every time. Someone asked my wife not too long ago what she thought about all the time I spent in jails, and she said, I love it, because she loves who I am when I come out. I get such a lift out of that. It, it, I had an experience a few years ago sitting in a little restaurant in Nashville, and a guy I, I could have sworn I'd never seen before walked up to me, and he says, you don't remember me. And I said, if I should, I apologize. I don't remember you. He said, well, you came into a prison I was in about three years ago, and you spoke, and I heard what you said. And I'm doing what you said, and I'm never going to have to go back. Thanks for my freedom. And I'm overpaid for the rest of my life. Boy, if you're not involved in corrections, I'll put you on my prayer list. I feel sorry for you. My goodness, what a fabulous, fabulous thing that is to be in there and to be a chance to be a tool in the master's hand. And I get such a lift out of that. Bill talks about that on page 15. Anyway, um, when I was... uh, Oh, it's hard to get to the beginning of a thought train, you know. Sometimes sometimes the whole thing runs right off the cliff and you don't get any of it. It's like meditation. I finally get to the place where there's nothing. I just have to do it in front of 200 people, that's all. <laughs> if, if somebody disagrees with something I say up here today, please tell me. I won't argue with you, I promise, but it's a chance for me to learn something. See, I'm not defending my beliefs anymore. I'm trying to hold them in an open hand. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas. Everything I learned through noon yesterday is now an old idea. And if I can hold it on an open hand, I can learn and I can build on it. So please help me if you disagree. And a fellow whose sponsor I sponsor stopped me after a meeting in my home group a few years ago and disagreed with something I'd said. What I had said was that my amends to my children would never be complete. He said, that's not right. He said, did you go to your children? Did you tell them what you felt you had done wrong? Did you ask what you could do to make it right and do what they said? Did you ask for their forgiveness and did they give it? I said, yes to all that. He said, you're trying to be the best dad you can be today is not ninth-step work. It's 12-step work. That's the principles in all your affairs. And if you think it's ninth-step work, you have either not accepted their forgiveness or God's or your own, and you have work to do. Because they serve a God that's more powerful than all the mistakes I've made. That's not a mistake on page 45 where it says, lack of power is my dilemma. I don't have the power to make a mistake. God can't turn into something magnificent. Not fix. I've seen him take the worst things I've ever done and use them as tools to help other people. Powerful, powerful God. My book doesn't say a doggone thing about continuing amends or living amends. And if you're making them, it's working for you. It's okay with me. But see, I don't need to live in the guilt anymore. I was guilty long enough. God offered me forgiveness. It's important for me to accept it and move on. 
This worst thing that I had done, I'm going to talk about for just a minute, was uh, if you've done this, by the way, and you're okay with it, I'm okay with it. I didn't come to indict you. It's just my story. When I was a young man, I paid for an abortion, and it, it really rotted my spirit. It just ate on me a lot. And that's what I was thinking about that night in that treatment center. And uh, when I said, God, forgive me, and he did. And when I got to the ninth step, it occurred to me that I owed amends to an unborn child, and I didn't think they could be made. I was fortunate to have been in the hands of people who knew what's in this book. I'd like to read to you from page 83. It says, some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. I was sat down by a spiritual advisor and given a plain white sheet of paper and told to write a letter to that child. And I did so, and I cried and I cried and I cried. And if you have a letter to write, I'd like to talk to you afterward a little bit about how I went about it and what I learned about that. It was important for me to just write until I could cry. As the fourth step isn't about writing... It's the observations and prayers in the fourth step that have the impact. Likewise, this letter for me wasn't about writing. It was the tears that washed away the pain. And so I wrote only until I was able to cry, and I was told to put down the pen. And I did that off and on, I don't know, an hour, two hours, however long it took. And when I was finished, I was handed a plain wet envelope and told to address the envelope. And I said, I don't know how to do that. And the question was asked, well, where is that child? I said, with God. I said, where is that? Heaven? <laughs> address the envelope. So I addressed this envelope to this unborn child in heaven and I was told to put on extra postage that was a long way from Nashville and I got free my mama died a little over a year ago and I want to tell a little story that a fella drove a long way to be at her going away party the preacher called it a memorial service but we called it a going away party Mary Jo had had a near-death experience a few years before that and she said the reason they can't find the Garden of Eden here is because it ain't here it's over there she'd seen it I wear the flowery tie and remember it's of my mama in her garden. Mary Jo went back to the garden in January last year. And a fellow drove a long way to be there. I'm his grand sponsor. There's nothing in my book that tells me how to hear a fifth step. It tells me how to give one. It says to illuminate. But it doesn't tell me how to hear one. So all I have is, is what my lineage passed on to me. And what they passed on to me is they don't hear fifth steps. They exchange. And if I hear your fifth step, I don't. you won't get all of mine, but you'll get the low points, I promise you. You'll get them all. It's part of what keeps them clean. And so this boy that I sponsor knew this story. And he hadn't had, hadn't had the experience. And he comes up with a guy he sponsors that's had the experience. And they call me. And I sit with this guy and his sponsor while he writes his letter to unborn children. He's asked me to tell you this story, by the way. I have permission. And when we finished, after a lot of tears, we uh, I handed him the white, plain white envelope. And he said, I think I'd like to burn this. The book doesn't say we mailed it. It says we sent it. And he says, I'd like to send it in the form of smoke. You know, who am I to argue with something like that? We go out back and he lights this thing and holds it until it's ashes and crumbles it and puts it on the roses. And he got free. And I have watched God use the very worst thing I've ever done as a tool to help someone else. That's one of my definitions of a miracle. I serve a powerful, powerful God who has given me, by grace, a powerful, powerful program that has saved my life and changed my life and made my life worth living. Massive, massive, massive changes. When I was living in that little apartment I was telling you about, I, I took a picture out of my wallet. And by the way, if you want to see it later, I'd love to show it to you. It's me at about four years old. Cutest little kid you ever saw in your life. Wearing a little jumper and a straw hat. And I had this picture blown up two feet wide, three feet high. I put it on the wall at the foot of the bed. And I didn't know why. Couldn't figure it out. Sometime not too long after that picture was taken, uh, that little boy started being abused. And that lasted a long time, that abuse did. 
And I'm not here to talk about that. And nothing happened in my chest when I just told you about that. Because, see, I've been through the forgiveness process and the fourth step in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, I hope you'll get with someone that just nodded their heads and find out. Um, I'll tell you how to find the, the fourth step, by the way. Go through that chapter and read it a sentence at a time. And after you read each sentence, stop and ask yourself a question. Can I do that? And if the answer is yes, do it before you read the next sentence. And I think you're going to find about 26 directions. And I think you're going to find most of them don't call for pen in hand. And I hope if you don't know what I'm talking about, please see me or somebody else that just nodded. This is powerful, powerful work. I've seen more lives change doing the actual fourth step out of the real big book than everywhere else combined. It's been massive. So anyway, I'm looking at this beautiful little boy on this wall. And this thought occurred to me. And the thought was, I wonder who he would have become if he'd received all the nurturing and all the love and guidance that he obviously deserved as a child of God. Who would he have become? And boy, I got my answer. And the answer was, it is my job to become the man that he would have been. That's my job. I have a program and a God that are more powerful than all the things that were done to me and all the things that I did to other people. Now, the question is, do I accept the assignment? And the answer today is, yeah, I do. So far today, I do. And the only directions I've found toward becoming the man that he would have been are in this book. The only ones that work for me. I'm not saying there aren't others. Those are the ones that work for me. Part of what I had to do is I had to learn to cry. See, I had, at about age 11, I got this mental image of what a man was. Second coming of John Wayne, you know. And uh, I spent the next 30 years pretending that's who I was. I was an act all the time. And I didn't know who stood behind the last mask. I had no idea who I was. I'm here to report that God was not having a bad day in the middle of a long losing streak when he came up with me or any of you. Didn't happen that way. What I discovered in the fourth and fifth step isn't who I am, it's who I'm not. If that had been who I was, it would have worked and I'd still be doing it, it wouldn't have upset me. That must be who I'm not. But see, I didn't know who I was. And as I stopped doing things that were incongruent, stopped doing things that were who I wasn't, who I really am just sort of emerged. And who I am as a child of God. And some of the things that I believed at 11 years old about what a man was were untrue. One of them was never ask for help. One of them was never ask a stupid question. One of them was pull yourself up by your bootstraps. When the t- going gets tough, the tough gets going. Big boys don't cry. I'll tell you something. None of that worked for me. Those were all lies for me. I had to change every bit of that. There was a guy in my home group that cried in almost every meeting. And he was a pretty masculine guy. And I went to him and I asked him about it. And he said, well, somebody says something beautiful, touches my heart, and I just cry. Crying and laughing are first cousins. I thought they were opposites. I said, Tony, I think I need to learn to cry. And he coached me for over a year before I was able to get the first tear out. And today I can cry. And it's one of the most beautiful gifts I've ever been given. And if you need to learn to cry and you're interested, see me. I'd love to love to share with you what he shared with me. It's really important. I've had ladies and men both ask. It's important. It's important for me to be real. Because when I was an act, one of the things I know for sure is it takes so much energy that the act must drink. And today I have to be real. I'm genuine. There's a fellow named Cherry Carpenter who spoke a lot around this part of the world. He's been dead a few years. He was in Nashville. He was one of the wizards in Nashville when I first got there. And Cherry said, I'd rather be despised for who I am than loved for who I'm not. That was powerful for me. What you think of me is none of my business. I hope you like me, but I'm okay if you don't. What I think of you can kill me. That's what it says in the fourth step. I believe that. I want to tell another flying story. I, I leveled at 40,000 feet on my last ride in that airplane I was telling you about. And uh, they gave me a working area. They're pretty big because you're doing nine-tenths of the speed of sound. They give you a 30-mile point around a circle in a big altitude block. You, at that speed, you have a lot. 
If you're going to play, you need a lot of space. And uh, that was before they had the radar that would tell them how high you were. And I thought, well, I wonder how high this thing will go. You're not supposed to be above 45,000 feet. Now, if you want to know later, I'll tell you why. It's very dangerous. So I pulled the power back out afterburner because you can watch the fuel gauges move in afterburner. And I started circling. I put her over in about 15 degrees of bank, and I was what the pilots call inside. That means I was looking at the gauges as opposed to outside looking out. 10 o'clock in the morning on a clear day up over the Georgia-Florida line, about 80 miles west of Jacksonville. And I got her to 52,300 feet. I thought I was going to get to 10 miles. That was my goal, but she wouldn't do it. So I'm about 8,000 feet above the service ceiling for this airplane, which is a very, very dangerous thing. And I was down to less than 100 feet a minute rate of climb. You can climb the stairs out here at that, at faster than that. I'm doing nine-tenths of the speed of sound. It's about 680 miles an hour. And it got just barely enough wind going over the wings to keep this thing flying. And I looked out for the first time. I'd been on the gauges. I looked outside for the first time. The sky above me at 10 o'clock in the morning on a clear day was almost black. It was so dark. And I'd just come around to the north, so I had the rising sun coming up over my right shoulder. And I looked out the left side to the west, and I saw the curvature of the earth. And you can see it doggone well from 52. Believe me. This, this thing is a ball. I saw it. Huge bend in the horizon. And I had a peace that washed over me. It was my first spiritual experience. It's the first one that I recall. And uh, the reason I retell that, number one, is I get to live it again. So I just saw it again when I told you. The other reason I tell you is to, re- to remind me that I serve a big God. I need to learn to dream big. I need to learn to dream big. That's on my list, by the way. I want to see the curvature of the earth one more time while I'm still trapped in this prison. I want to see it again. I'm learning to dream big. Is anybody on a leer, by the way? Question of time. Question of time. I missed one by two weeks here. Just a couple of months ago. A girl had just divorced one. But uh, those things happen. You know, today I belong. Alcohol gave me the feeling that I belonged. It was an illusion. Today I belong. I'm one of you guys. I am a member here. And I know it. And I can feel it in here. And it's such a phenomenal feeling. What a wonderful feeling it is. I am I am blessed. I've got a 12-hour talk. I'm not going to be able to give it all to you this morning. Because my my wife has got to go. But if you want to hear some more, I'll do one more cup of coffee. And, and you know, we can go out in the lobby. I'd like to thank my God. I asked for an open heart. And it has rarely been more open than this. And I would like to thank you for inviting your God. And I hope your heart was open. And I hope it was touched. And if you were new... Or if you borrowed my God because you wasn't working and you got touched, maybe you want to give him some thanks and maybe do some more business with him. He does pretty great work. I was in Knoxville, Tennessee a few years ago at a little discussion meeting. You know, 10 or 12 people in a room, not like a speaker meeting where you can hide out. But when they come around to you, they don't want to hear your name and disease. They want you to talk also. And there was this old boy sitting in there with his chair rocked back on the back legs and these little half glasses up on his bald head and a scowl and his arms are falling. I thought, attitude case, I can't wait to hear from this one. And he was really old, about 50, I guess. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, when they got to him, he said, I've just come back from an ancient ritual, from a medieval ceremony where 10,000 people sat around in an unair-conditioned auditorium wearing long robes. I figured that out. That's graduation, University of Tennessee. Okay, That was commencement. <laughs> I figured out he's a professor there. He said, Alex Haley, the gentleman that wrote Roots, was the featured speaker. And he said Mr. Haley's first few words reminded him so strongly of AA that he forgot about the unair-conditioned thing and the robes and all that stuff. And he sat and was just grateful for his program. And what Alex Haley said that I also think defines our fellowship better than anything else I have ever heard was this. If you see a turtle 
sitting up on top of a fence post, you know he's had help. Thanks for the help.